Well, thank you everybody for coming. So as was mentioned, I'm gonna share some photographs with you from a collection that my family donated um, to the Montana Historical Society. And the donation, well actually you guys could probably tell me better than myself, the donation was made probably about 15 years ago, maybe even longer ago than that, um, of some photographs that my great aunt took. Um, she took a lot more photographs than what I'm going to share, or, and even that was uh, um, donated to the Historical Society. I think there's about 100 photographs that got donated to the Historical Society. Um, and one of the reasons why um, we don't have access to many of the photographs she took was because she lived along Cutbank Creek um, in, in the year 1964 um, when the uh, huge flood happened along the Front Range. Her house, um, which actually was a cabin, but the cabin that she lived in got washed down Cutbank Creek and a lot of her photographs um, that were in that cabin were lost. So what is in the Historical Society is part of a collection that remained um, that she still had. And the majority of those photos were taken in the early 1940s. Um, and that's why today's talk is about sort of that time period um, of the early war years um, on the reservation. So this is a photograph of my aunt and it was taken by her husband. So there are a couple of photos of her in the photo collection that were taken by her husband. Uh, and her husband's name was um, uh, Loey Yellow Wolf, but I'll say, I'll say a little bit more about him in a sec. So I wanted to begin by sharing um, her um, lineage. And um, so my great aunt, so this is my grandmother's sister, um, Ella Madplume. Uh, she uh, and her husband never had children, um, which was common for many people on the reservation kind of from the t uh, turn of the century till the 1950s because there was a real low um, infant uh, mortality rate and a low fertility rate um, among indigenous women and men and partly that was due because of a lot of um, diseases um, that were spread uh, among uh, on the reservation and so um, both my my great aunt who never had children, her husband who also never had children, and then within the family when different people got sick, um, they would adopt other people's children. So we have this kind of crazy like uh, family lineage between folks, but this is kind of a direct lineage, just to let you know. Um, okay, so, oops, I think I went backwards. Sorry, ah, let me go back. Okay, so my grandmother's um, uh, parents were Elmer Madplume and uh, Minnie Spotted Bear. They were kind of the first generation of folks that started using a first name and a last name. They were not born with a first name and a last name, but they were actually acquired a first name and a last name later in life um, because the um, first names and last names around the turn of the century and in the teens started being provided both by um, the uh, United States government agency and then also the Catholic Church. So Elmer um, had a different name before he became Elmer, and then Minnie. It was very common. There's a lot of people, when you look in the records, like Minnie became a really common woman's name, and actually what it means is berry. So the word Minnie means um, berries um, in Blackfeet, and so that became sort of this common um, name. A lot of the names that got selected, um, especially by women, were names that they could pronounce in English, 
and that had some sort of meaning actually in the Blackfeet language, or it was a completely like taken out of the Bible name, right? So, um, and then her, uh, let's see, my, I might, okay, my um, uh, Ella's grandparents were Mad Plume and Kills at Nights, and then her great-grandparents were uh, uh, Taking Calf and Long Time Sitting. Um, several of these folks were still alive when my grandmother and, my, and her sisters grew up. Um, but I wanted to begin by sort of sharing this photograph. So when I think of Ella, this is how I remember her. Um, she was uh, already a very old woman when I um, first uh, knew her as a child, and she passed away when I was 25 years old. So I knew her for the first 25 years of my life. Um, my grandmother um, had, um, I think, and I'll, I meant to look last night because people passed away when they were young, like children died when they were young. I think she had eight brothers and sisters, and um, five of them lived to adulthood. She also had two brothers who died during World War II. Um, so these were the three sisters that sort of remained um, and, and lived to adulthood, lived to um, being old women. Um, but Ella, Victoria, and my grandmother Annie were sort of like these three women that always hung out together and were always together. Um, but El because Ella did not have children, she adopted um, children from both um, my Aunt Victoria and from my grandmother. And so she raised folk, you know, uh, people from both sides of the, her sister's family um, as her own. So here's the photo of um, Ella again. So, you know, Ella really was a cowgirl, and so was her husband. They had a ranch um, on Cutbank Creek, and, um, and they uh, were ranchers their entire lives until they both passed away. And they both passed away within um, three months of each other, um, which is very common, as you know, for some old, old, old folks. Um, and because, you know, they uh, lived together for over 50 years. Um, so back in the day, um, in Blackfeet society, um, we had arranged marriages. So my grandmother and all of her sisters had arranged marriages. Um, and as is traditional in Blackfeet society, even if you have an arranged marriage, if the marriage doesn't work out, you can get a divorce. So women could ask for a divorce. And so in the case of Ella and in the case of my grandmother, the first match that they were matched with didn't work out. Um, it, so in Ella's case, she was married when she was very young. I mean, in these days, very young. She was like 18. Um, and then she was divorced by the time she was 20. She didn't get married again until she was 30. Um, and she just worked. Uh, and uh, with my grandmother, it's kind of a similar story. She, she was married. Um, that match did not work out. Um, she had a young daughter. Um, with that person and her daughter died from influenza, from the flu, um, and then she uh, remained single for a little while and then she had an arranged marriage with my grandfather. Um, back in those days, it was common for women to make arrangements, not it, like men had no part of the arranging of marriage. It was usually grandmother and grandmother would get together to, to marry their, children, their grandchildren. Um, and so that was the case um, with all of these matches that took, that took place. And then my aunt Victoria, who was in the middle, um, she stayed married to the person she was matched with her entire, her entire life. 
Um, so this is my uncle Lowy, who was um, my, uh, like I said, my, uh, my Aunt Ella's second husband. Um, and one of the things that is interesting about him, or I should say unique about him during this time period, and then just to let you know, um, in the future, I wrote a paper on kind of these photographs, and it's going to be in the Montana Magazine of History some, at some point. I'm not sure when, in the, in the next few, in, the one, in one of the next few uh, uh, um, editions. Um, and so part of what I'm telling you is part of what will maybe uh, in, 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 in the written version. So um, what is interesting about Lowy is he's half African-American. Um, and there were actually several um, Af African-American um, men, mostly, who were living on um, the Blackfeet Reservation and also on the Canadian side, on the Blood Reserve. And so there are, there are several families um, within the reservation from, you know, we're talking the teens, um, who are half black and half um, black feet. He's one of those people. Um, he never had children though, um, so uh, that lineage, um, again, ended kind of with him and with, um, with, uh, um, with Ella. Um, the other thing that is kind of interesting about him is he's actually um, the nephew uh, to um, Schultz. Um, to George Willard Schultz, and his uh, his mother um, was the sister of Schultz's wife, um, and so he grew up um, in this kind of interesting world of um, interacting with a lot of outsiders. So people who came to the Blackfeet Reservation and studied the Blackfeet, and so all of the folks like you know Grinnell and Whistler and um, all of those folks, um, he got to meet as a really young child, um, and um, but what he did for his early life as a profession um, was he was a trapper. Um, he also worked as a woodhawker, which I'll show you another photo in just a minute. Um, he was a trapper and he did almost all of his trapping in Glacier National Park. So you have to remember that Glacier National Park only became Glacier National Park in 1910. People had been historically um, hunting in that area, trapping in that area. So when it became a park in 1910, um, the Blackfeet still continued to use it. They still continued to hunt there. They still continued to trap there. And so my uncle continued to trap there till the 1950s. Um, and there are several cabins now that are up um, a couple of the different watersheds that he actually built for his winter trapping cabins. Um, and a couple of them are still there today. Um, and it's kind of interesting because every once in a while I'll hear from somebody who is a Glacier National Park historian and they're like, oh, there's these like forestry cabins that are up at such and such creek. I'm like, no, 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 those are like trapping cabins <laughs> that my uncle built. Um, so this is one of his cabins that he had and this is actually on um, Two Medicine, or not Two Medicine, Cupping Creek. And this is closer to where, um, almost by the foothills. And this cabin still exists today too. It's, no one lives there, it's just empty, sitting along um, Cutbank Creek. So this is a photo, obviously, of going out and cutting um, logs. Um, so one of the um, 
uh, economic systems that they had on the Blackfeet Reservation for a while was cutting down trees, as it was kind of across Montana. And there were several um, small law, um, sawmills um, on the Blackfeet Reservation um, where they cut down trees. And because of the railroad um, that went through um, what is now sort of East Glacier, Browning, that whole area, they had an easy transport system to be able to um, take logs and take them to quote unquote, urban areas, right? And at that time, one of the big urban areas was Kellispell. Um, Kellispell, as you know, became a huge boom town um, in 1910 because of the Homestead Act. Um, and so a lot of the resources that were on the eastern side of Montana got shipped over to the western side of Montana. And this is one of the things that got shipped over. And this is a photograph from Kellispell. So this is a photograph of um, native folks um, harvesting potatoes. And um, so one of the other kind of economic industries um, that indigenous people had um, at this, and so that, remember this is kind of the early, late, late 30s, early 1940s, was they became um, migrant farm workers. Um, people would work as migrant farm workers first here in the state of Montana. By the 1950s, that expanded to Washington State and Oregon State in the 1960s and 1970s. Native people worked as migrant farm workers um, until about the 1980s uh, as kind of one of their main um, uh, jobs that people had. Uh, then, in kind of the 70s and 80s, um, kind of beginning in the 60s with the Bracero program, but then really more towards the 70s and 80s, that switched over from Native Americans being migrant farm workers to uh, Mexican Americans being migrant farm workers because they became less expensive and because of the Bracero program, which was a, um, like a trade program where you could get a green card and the United States government would allow, we still do this today, but now we have people from Eastern Europe, right, who come to Montana and work and they get paid a lot less. Um, so if you are uh, in agriculture, you just pay less money for that person. So anyway, um, but for a very long time, like native people um, fulfilled that role. So it's kind of interesting to me um, when I look at some of these photographs that my, my aunt took, um, that she actually took a lot of photos of people doing work. Um, and what's um, really good today for like, um, contemporary historians, um, whether you're you know, an amateur historian or a professional historian, people who are interested in local history. Um, she did kind of an amazing job of, of gathering and photographing kind of this typical daily lives of people um, in the state of Montana. And the jobs that they did um, it's kind of surprising the number of photos that she has just of people, you know, doing their job. And this is one of them, is kind of picking potatoes. Um, the other thing she took a lot of photos of is families and children. Um, again, because her and her husband did not have children, she always loved kids. And she always loved having kids around her. And so there are many photos that she has um, in this collection of her um, relatives, um, of uh, family members, church um, members, et cetera, where she has pictures of the babies and the kids. Um, unfortunately, many of these are just not identified because she took them, you know, around 1940. Um, there's a few in the photo collection where people are identified, but now a lot of the people who would know who these um, young babies are have already passed. Um, so. 
This is actually, I'll, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in a minute, but this is actually a photo that's taken at a Sundance. And then this is a photo of kids um, that we think are from the Black Weasel family that also lived along Cutbank Creek, um, just up uh, kind of river from them. And then this is just a great photo of kind of the family and the community getting together. And of course, this is, you know, most people back then did not have cars. Um, they still, their main form of transportation was through, you know, um, horse and wagon. And, um, and so when people would go to town, um, I've heard a lot of stories about this on the Blackfeet Reservation. I mean, it was kind of like the, uh, you know, old fashioned Uber. You know, when somebody was going to town, people would yell and say, we're going to town. And like people would run over and jump in the wagon. And by the time they got into Browning, they had like a wagon full of people um, just to go shopping or socializing. And then they'd all end the day, they'd all like take the wagon back to, you know, out in the country. Um, so Cutbank Creek, if you don't know, is about, um, I should have looked this up, maybe about five miles outside of Browning. So it's not that far in contemporary times, but back in the day, five miles is a pretty long ways to go um, in a wagon. Um, so several of these folks are also identified, actually, in the photographs. So one of the other things that um, Ella um, took photographs of was church life. Um, and she and her husband were devout Christians, um, but they also practiced Blackfeet religion. So they both grew up in families that practiced Blackfeet religion. They became Christians as adults. Um, and so they continued throughout their lives to go to the, what's called the Okan or the Sundance. Um, and because she was a member of the Blackfeet tribe, and um, you know the way historians say a quote-unquote like insider um, to the community, um, she was allowed access um, to be able to take photographs of um, some of the ceremonial activity um, and the people who are practicing um, ceremonies that other people probably would not be allowed um, to take those photos. So there's some um, interesting photos that she has that are in the collection um, from that time period. So this is actually from um, part of the Sundance uh, is, um, let's see, how can I explain this? So part of the Sundance is like a walking um, ceremony. So the ceremony doesn't just happen like when you're sitting down and in church. Um, the ceremony happens between places. And so one of the things, historically, they would, what they would do is they'd walk from shrine to shrine. And the walking part of it from the shrine to the shrine is kind of like a pilgrimage, but the walking was an actual ceremony by itself. What they ended up doing once um, the Blackfeet were confined to the Blackfeet reservation was they would still try to include that walking part of the ceremony, except they did it kind of within the confines of where um, the Sundance was occurring. So instead of going from shrine to shrine across the landscape, they were sort of, uh, oftentimes they would just walk around the um, Sundance um, Lodge and they would have to do this in, in um, four days. So they would actually spend literally an entire day walking and they would have to do this while they were fasting from food and water. Um, so, the, and, so anyway, 
So the person in front is, the, is one of the religious leaders who's male, and then everybody behind him is, are the women who are the leaders of the Sundance. Um, so this is a photograph of them sort of doing this walking um, ritual that occurs at Sundances. And then this is a picture of church. So, um, so she also has several photographs of them at the newly created Pentecostal churches um, on the Blackfeet Reservation. So the Catholic Church came in 1890. We're talking 1940 now, so if there's been 50 years the Catholic Church had been there. In 1940, the Pentecostal Church came to the Blackfeet Reservation, and a lot of people converted to Pentecostalism. And um, I would argue still one of the major, you know, the two major religions on the Blackfeet uh, Reservation today is Catholicism and Pentecostalism. So my aunt Ella and her husband Lowy became Pentecostal members, and eventually Lowy actually became a leader within the Pentecostal church. Um, and I, don't, I don't know the exact terminology they use. Like, you know, in Catholicism, they have deacons and that sort of thing. But in Pentecostalism, he became one of the leaders um, and was oftentimes one of the preachers when they didn't have an outside um, preacher there. So some of the photographs that she took are also of this life um, of religion. Um, and again, what I think is really interesting um, is that um, she is telling, kind of providing these photos of daily life, um, but she's also including this kind of diversity of um, religion and religious practice that is happening at that time on the Blackfeet Reservation that is actually not being documented really by anybody else but now we have sort of this great source um, to look at these um, documentation. Um, the other photos that she has, and again, this is, we're, now we're back at the Sundance. Um, this is a different Sundance picture. Um, the other photos that she has um, during this time period are um, about the war. So the war um, is emerging, um, and then the war begins of, of World War II. And so she has photos of how the um, reservation is changing because of the impact of the war. Um, what is different about World War II from World War I for Native Americans is during World War I, even though Native Americans did serve in the war, they were not citizens of the United States. Um, the Blackfeet and all, um, all uh, Native Americans didn't become citizens until 1924. So for example, all of my grandparents, Ella and Lowy, they were born not citizens of the United States, right? They became citizens of the United States um, with one federal law, uh, which was the American Indian Citizenship Act in 1924. So when World War II happened, it was the first time that Native Americans participated in a war where they were citizens of the United States and where they were being, not just volunteering to be part of the war, but they were being drafted as citizens. So there was a real high level of participation during World War II, um, also in World War I, but much more in World War II because now they were citizens versus just volunteering. Um, so this is a picture of um, so just FYI, so when people put up teepees, the, te the front of the teepee is facing east, 
So where are we here? That's facing east, right? This is west. Um, and so they're putting up this uh, American flag on the far west side um, of the arbor uh, where people have teepees at this particular Sundance. Um, and so this is a photo of, um, I don't know what time of day this is. Um, we could probably try and figure it out by the shadows that we see that are on the ground. Um, but they're putting up the American flag um, as part of um, the Sundance that's occurring. But it's not in the main area, it's on the outside. Um, this is a photo, um, obviously, of soldiers. Um, we don't know who these people are. Uh, none of them are identified. I believe that none of them are Blackfeet because this was a group of um, soldiers that came as part of a burial team. So I'll show you, a uh, the next photo is somebody being buried. Um, but um, during, as you know, during World War II, you know, uh, there was a high uh, mortality rate of people who um, died as part of the war. Like I told you, my grandmother had brothers who also died um, during the war and were, were also prisoners of war. Um, one of my, one of my grandmother and Ella's brother um, was a prisoner of war in um, Germany for 18 months. And then when he was liberated, he then was in Switzerland for six months because he had to recoup, he had to recover um, from having been a prisoner of war. And then they shipped him back on a boat um, after that happened. Um, so um, the next photo here is of the burial um, of and again, we don't know who this is that is being buried or whose family it is. Um, and um, there's several photos from this particular, um, uh, there could be more, but I think these were all the same um, burial of somebody um, dying. And um, you can see from, just from this photo, kind of the large crowd of people that came for this um, event. Um, that was part of sort of the Blackfeet community um, when somebody from their own community passed away during the war. Um, so I want to kind of end by saying, t talking a little bit kind of just about photography in general. How much time do I have? Are we good? You got about three minutes. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Well, I was going to say, so at the same time that my grandmother or my, my, my great aunt was taking photographs, other people were taking photographs as well. Um, and so this is a photograph that, was, um, that I used on the cover of my book um, that was taken at the same time period. This was taken in 1942. Um, this is at Hart Butte, and it's at the Hart Butte Sundance. Um, and my family, um, this is my grand, on the other side of the family, uh, the, the uh, father's side of the family, this is my great-grandparents' teepee. And my mother and her sisters and brothers were staying in it while they were at the Sundance, because my, my mother was born in 1940. Um, and um, so there were other folks on the reservation who were also taking photographs, but um, what other photographers were interested in were um, what we would consider, or what I would consider sort of like stereotypical life of Blackfeet people. So they were interested in ceremonies, they were interested when Blackfeet were dressed up in regalia, they weren't interested in kind of the daily life of the Blackfeet themselves. And so it's interesting to be able to kind of look at the photographs of somebody like my great aunt, 
who's taking all of these photographs of just daily living and daily life versus what um, other folks are taking pictures of. And in this case, it's a picture of a teepee instead of people. Um, and then actually that's an artist who um, ends up drawing the teepee. So, um, so that's all. Thank you very much. Are there any questions for Dr. Lapeer or comments? <laughs> yeah. What kind of camera did she use? What kind of camera? Um, I had to guess on that one. I, I had to guess on that one. And so I actually did research on the time period and did research on what would have been a commonly um, used camera at the time that was available to most people, um, that was affordable, um, et cetera, and came up with the Brownie as probably the camera that she had. Um, I asked, I did ask around in my family to if people knew, and of course she had cameras throughout her life, and the one she had in 1940, she still um, probably didn't have any more. Yeah, that's a no. That's a good question. I actually did research on it. <laughs> and so, did you have a question too? A comment that is most interesting, as you alluded to at the very end. So that's a really good question and a really long answer. <laughs> so I'll just say this really quickly. So there's two kinds of teepees. Um, there's teepees that ha are blank, that have nothing on them, um, and anybody can, you know, buy and sell a teepee. If there's a teepee that has a design on it, that's a whole nother, you know, what is a phrase? That's a horse of a different color. That's a whole nother issue. Um, so um, when a teepee has a design on it, um, there's a ceremony that has to take place for that design, not the teepee, not the physical teepee, but the design of the teepee has to be transferred to somebody else to then use that um, particular design. Um, people made, uh, uh, made teepees and got rid of teepees really quickly because they wouldn't last that long. So if they were made out of bison, they'd only last a couple years, and so they would you know, make new teepees all the time. When they had canvas, those don't last very long either. Um, now they do because you can, put, um, the, you can make them waterproof, right? You put chemicals on them, they're waterproof. Uh, back in the day they didn't, so they wouldn't last very long. Um, so people would have a teepee for a couple years and then they'd get a new one and get a new one and get a new one. Okay. The design though is a whole nother story. Like, so you could get a new teepee every two years, but getting, having, owning the design and being able to say that you own the design, is a, that's a, there's a whole ceremony and transferring and the knowledge and most of the designs have a song, a story, a ritual object, uh, there's a mythology around it. It's like it's um, a huge kind of ritual process. Um, but if your teepee's blank, there's, there's no, no process. So, no, that's a good, answer, a good question. Now, if you, own, if you own the design, you can repaint your teepee with the design. Yeah, it's just the owning of the design. Yeah, I do not believe so, no. Um, and for a while, so in Browning for a long time, there was a um, photo shop there called Glacier Studios. And Glacier Studio would, um, would uh, make people's photos. I don't know, do you guys have stuff from Glacier Studio? 
in the archives. I, I was going to say, I thought, yeah. Glacier Studio also used to do, you know how um, back in the day people would make postcards out of their photos? They, would, they made tons of postcards of just all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, thanks so much. If you have any questions, come up afterwards. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Look for her article in an upcoming edition of Montana, the magazine of Western history.